This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Take your Bibles this morning, be turning with me to the book of Romans again. This morning we find ourselves in Romans chapter 7 as we continue our exposition of Paul's magnum opus. And this morning... We are entering a section of scripture that has complicated um, the thoughts of many scholars and commentators throughout church history, and we're going to uh, begin to look at this chapter by taking a very small chunk, namely verses 1 through 6. So I would invite you to take your Bibles and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll pick up in verse number 1, and I'll read through verse number 6. Paul writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, and ordered that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to his word, and let's ask him for his help this morning as we look at this passage together. Father, as we come to study the truth of your word, we pray. We pray for grace to hear your truth. We pray for humility to receive your truth. We pray for strength to believe your truth. And we ask all of this for your glory and for our good as we ask it with special unction. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In order to understand chapter 7, we really need to go all the way back to chapter 6 and verse 14. Where Paul told us that sin will have no dominion over us. And he says this, since you are not under law, but under grace. He gives the reason in chapter 6 and verse 14 as to why sin no longer dominates the Christian. And the reason is, as Paul says there in verse 14, is that we are not under law, but we are under grace. Now, Paul does not in chapter 6 give a detailed explanation of how exactly it is that the believer is no longer under the law. As a matter of fact, Paul kind of takes a rabbit trail in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 6, answering whether or not it is okay to sin since we aren't under the law. But that's not really giving an explanation as to what it means when we say the Christian isn't under the law. He's simply answering a critic that may make the accusation that we can just sin and live any way we want to live. So that's sort of a rabbit trail at the end of chapter 6. 
It's not until chapter 7 that Paul begins to bring clarity to what it means when we say that the Christian is no longer under law. And in fact, we have to back up even further to Romans chapter 5 and even further still to Genesis chapters 1 through 3 to really understand this. You understand that the covenant of works was a covenant that God made with Adam. We call it a covenant of works because Adam was under a probationary period, but this covenant of works was really a gracious covenant because God is not ever obligated to enter covenant with man. And the covenant of works in Genesis 1 through 3 stipulated that because Adam and Eve were image bearers of God, they would be put to a test and they were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The idea being that if they obeyed, they would secure for themselves and for their posterity the eternal advantage of eating from the tree of life. And you well know that they did not pass the test, and so the promise of death ensued. Now, in Romans chapter 5, Paul is making a contrast between that first Adam under the covenant of works and the second Adam, or the last Adam, who was in Christ. Summarized in chapter 5, verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That is, Paul is telling us that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was also put to a test, wasn't he? Jesus Christ was exposed to the temptation in the wilderness under Satan for 40 days. And we read in the gospel accounts that fasting and praying... Jesus resisted the temptation that he underwent by Satan, and his actions effectively demonstrated what he later told the Samaritan woman in John 4 when Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's exactly what the second Adam did for 33 years of his entire life. Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed, and then he died to fully accomplish the work of redemption the Father sent him to do. You could put it this way, he lived for righteousness And he died to sin. And he did that representing us, representing God's elect people, absorbing the full wrath of God as a sufficient substitute. Jesus Christ is the new and last Adam, fulfilling the covenant of works that Adam didn't fulfill, and Jesus fulfilled it in what we call the covenant of grace. And Jesus did that by obeying the law. Jesus did that by preaching the law. Jesus did that by upholding the law. So that as Paul later says in chapter 7 and verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. R.C. Sproul says, and I quote, Jesus' perfect act of obedience is as much grounds of our salvation as is his punishment on the cross. And that was Paul's point in Romans Chapter 5, Paul was essentially saying that the covenant of grace in Christ is superior to the covenant of works in Adam. And the covenant of grace was given immediately after the fall of Adam. And it was given to Adam and to Eve and to their progeny. That is, those who would believe like them, that the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, would come and redeem us from our sin, not because we kept the law, but because Jesus kept the law for us. And that's why Paul was so adamant in Romans chapter 5 about the doctrine of justification. We are justified in the sight of God based on the works of Jesus alone. Because he died, or because we died with him on the cross, we also died to the law as a means of salvation. We died to the law and the condemning power of the law. 
So going back to Romans 6 and verse 14, when Paul says sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace, this is a grand proposition. And in verses 15 through 23, he told us what it looked like to be under grace. Essentially, he told us that we aren't to go on sinning just because we are no longer under the law. Verse 15, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Paul says, by no means. He says, God forbid. But now he's going to answer the other side of that proposition. He's already spoken about what it means to be under grace. It means that you don't take advantage of grace. You don't use grace as a license to sin. But now in chapter 7, he's going to describe what it means to be under the law of God. And chapter 7, excuse me, what it means to no longer be under the law. What it means to no longer be under the law. And this chapter presents a number of difficulties. The the famous commentator William Barclay put it this way. He says, and I quote, Seldom did Paul write so difficult and so complicated a passage. That might be a little bit overestimated, but it's not far off. If you take Paul's words in Romans 7 out of context, if you don't understand Romans 5, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, if you don't understand Romans 6, that we aren't to continue in sin, that more grace may abound, then you can be confused as to what Paul means in Romans 7 when he says the Christian is no longer under the law of God. Many people raise a number of questions that cause confusion. They ask, for example, what is the place of the law in the life of a Christian if we are no longer under the law? Are we no longer under the moral standards of Moses' law? That's what some Christians actually teach. Other people ask the question, well, who is the wretched man of verse 24? Remember, Paul says that at the end of this passage, referring to himself. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And people ask the question, well, is Paul referring to a regenerate person or an unregenerate person? How could this be a regenerate person if he calls himself a wretched man when God has called a saved person a righteous man? Is Paul speaking about himself pre-conversion, that he was a wretched man pre-conversion and that Jesus delivered him? Or is Paul speaking about post-conversion, that there's still a wretchedness to his life, a sinfulness about his life that disgusts him? Those are important questions. And then, of course, you have the illustration in verse 2 of a husband dying who is married to a woman. And the question is asked, who does the husband represent? Does the husband represent the law of God? Does the husband represent Adam? And if the husband represents the law, then what law? Is it Mosaic law? Is it the law of nature? found in conscience because Paul takes that illustration in verse number two of the husband dying and he applies it in verses three and four to the Christian that there is a sense in which a death has taken place in a marriage and now we are married to someone else. Well, these are important questions, but we need to begin by affirming very clearly that both Paul and Jesus upheld the law of God for the life of the Christian. So whatever Paul is saying in Romans 7, he's not saying that you can live any way that you want to live, that God's moral standards no longer have authority over you. For example, Paul illustrated this in his own life. You might remember in Acts chapter 20 that Paul was falsely accused of hating the law of Moses by unbelieving Jews. And so the elders at um, the church in Jerusalem 
counseled Paul to take part in a Nazarite vow ceremony in the temple. And the thinking was that such an outward respect for the law of God, although it was unnecessary from God's vantage point, may actually diffuse any speculation that Paul rejected obedience to the law in the life of a Christian. Because here is Paul taking a Nazarite vow, which was part of the system of law in the Old Testament. Now, it didn't work. But it was a public attempt to put to rest false accusations against Paul that he taught and that he lived in a way that the law had no place in the life of a Christian. Paul clearly was upholding the law of God there. And that's an illustration of him upholding the law of God. Jesus also illustrated this in a sermon. He used the scribes and Pharisees as an illustration. Remember Jesus said, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus, like Paul, was also falsely accused of not upholding the law, was making a point by making that statement. And in that same sermon, Jesus said, look, I've not come to abolish the law or to overturn it or to annul it. I've come to fulfill it. So Jesus didn't overturn the law of God. Paul didn't overturn the law of God. And that is why John Stott, the famous commentator, suggests that Paul, in chapter 7, is possibly addressing three different attitudes toward the law. And I would like to borrow from John Stott and use um, these three possible attitudes as an outline of chapter 7. Now, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 6. And in verses 1 through 6, this morning, that's all we're going to look at, John Stott says that Paul is addressing the legalist. Now, the legalist would be one who is still in bondage to the law. He seeks to be justified by the law. He looks to the law as a power to be sanctified. And Paul tells him in verses 1 through 6 that the law is no longer an authority over a Christian. A Christian is no longer in bondage over the law of God. Now, technically speaking, there is no such thing as a Christian who is a legalist. A legalist, purely speaking, is one who is not saved because they're trusting in obedience to the law. But there are Christians who have a tendency uh, toward a legalistic sort of way of living. And I think that's what Paul is addressing in verses 1 through 6. Those Christians struggling with the fact that they see the importance of the law so much that they've diminished the power of the Spirit. And they have a legalistic mindset. And Paul basically says that being subject to the law apart from the liberating gospel work of the Spirit is futile. It only leads to condemnation. So why are you, as he told the Galatians, trying to go on by working out your salvation in the flesh? We could borrow Peter's words to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. The law of God is a yoke that neither our fathers nor us could bear. And Paul is making that point in verses 1 through 6. Now, that's all we're going to look at this morning, but let me give you the other two attitudes following the outline. Secondly, in verses 7 through 13, Paul is addressing the antinomian. This is the opposite of the legalist. The antinomian rejects the law of God as normative for Christian living. He sees that the, um, the Christian is at liberty and licensed to sin. And Paul says that such a negative attitude toward the law of God is blasphemous. He says that in verse 12, that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So a Christian who lives in an antinomian sort of manner that diminishes the importance of the law is really um, denigrating something that is holy and righteous and good, namely the law of God. And that's a wrong attitude to have. It's wrong for us to be legalistic. It's wrong for us to be antinomian. 
And so Paul then addresses a third attitude. This is the right attitude in verses 14 through 25. This is the liberated yet law-fulfilling true Christian. Paul addresses him by his own testimony, and he says that the Christian now enjoys freedom from the law's demands and justification and sanctification, but it's a freedom in the power of the Spirit to live an obedient life. And Paul expands upon that in chapter 8. Paul essentially says in verses 14 and following that the Christian life is a struggle for the one seeking to obey God, but we aren't left to ourselves. Number one, because Christ has fulfilled all the demands of the law in our in justification. And number two, the Spirit enables us to obey the law of God in sanctification. And again, Paul expands on that in chapter 8. Paul, of course, uses his own testimony in verses 14 and following um, to explain this truth. And so that's a very, very important passage. Now, we want to go back to the first attitude that Paul is addressing, namely in verses 1 through 6, where he is addressing the legalist, or more technically speaking, a true Christian, or at least a professing Christian, who appears to have legalistic tendencies. They always talk about the law of God, and they always judge others according to the law of God, and they have a prideful spirit. So Paul begins to address them, and he labors to show in verses 1 through 6 that there is a sense in which the Christian has been freed from the law of God. And I want to encourage you this morning with this reality, with several caveats um, taken from the Bible itself, because I think this passage of Scripture will help give encouragement to those of you that are struggling with past guilt over pre-conversion sin. All of us committed sin in our pre-conversion days that from time to time arises and swells up on our hearts and our souls to condemn us, and that is the devil that is doing that. That is a satanic ploy to discourage us from living a holy life. And the reality of the fact that you've been freed from the law of God and the condemning power of the law of God allows you to live guilt-free from pre-conversion sin. Secondly, this passage helps us to be free from the guilt of post-conversion sin that we've already repented of and confessed to the Lord. How many of us this morning can think of sins that we feel so ashamed of that we have committed post-conversion? And it's as if the devil whispers in our ear, how could you be a true Christian and do that? How could you be a true Christian and say that? How can you be a true Christian and yet you've done this? Well, Paul says we've been freed from the law, and part of that freedom, that liberty in the Spirit, is not to have guilt over sin we've confessed post-conversion that we're repenting of. And third, this passage helps us because all of us struggle with at least one besetting sin, a sin that we can't seem to conquer. And Paul encourages us in this passage to tell us that we don't have to live in guilt as we struggle with that sin. In fact, as long as we're in the fight, we're in God's favor. We are to fight against that sin. We may never fully conquer it in this lifetime, but the fact that we're fighting against it and the fact that the Spirit is enabling us to fight against it gives us confidence that ultimately we will overcome that besetting sin. So how does Paul address those of us that tend toward a legalistic sort of way of living? How does Paul tell us that we've been freed from the law? Well, he does four things. First of all, he gives to us a universal observation. Secondly, a marital illustration. Third, a spiritual application. And fourth, a practical explanation. First of all, notice with me 
the universal observation. It's found there in verse 1. Paul begins, or do you not know brothers? Or do you not know brothers? Now this suggests, though he's writing specifically to Christians notwithstanding, that the observation he is making regarding the limited jurisdiction of the law is universal. It's, it's to all people. He says, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So though he is writing to brothers, that is professing Christians who know the law, he follows that by saying that I'm also speaking to those who know the law. And that is not just restricted to Christians. There is a sense in which all mankind knows the law of God. This is not a restrictive class. The law here is being used very generally, not just the Mosaic law, but law in general. Paul is saying that all people know the law of God, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, um, whether you're a Roman, whether you're an American, whether you're a Russian, it doesn't matter. Because there is something called the law of nature. And Paul spoke about this in Romans chapter 2. Some people are not comfortable with that language, law of nature, I'm personally comfortable with it because Paul said in Romans 2 verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So they may not be under Mosaic law. They may not follow the Ten Commandments, but they have a law of nature within them. Paul says in verse 15, they show that work of the law is written on their hearts because their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. So Paul says, there is a knowledge of law among all mankind. This is a universal observation, but it's not, notice, just law that all men have knowledge of. It's not just right and wrong that all men have knowledge of. It's not just the knowledge that everyone knows what is lawful and what is not lawful, and there's guilt associated with certain actions. No, the knowledge that Paul speaks about in verse 1 includes a specific knowledge about law itself. Notice the end of verse 1. Paul says that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. This is a universal observation that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. The phrase binding on a person translates kuriuo. It literally means has jurisdiction over. The law has jurisdiction over a person, or literally it lords it over a person, it rules over a person, it dominates a person, it has power over a person, kuriuo. The root word for that is kurios, which is the Greek word for lord. Paul is saying The universal observation I'm making is that the law has a powerful influence, dominating influence, a jurisdiction on a person, but it's limited. That law is only in force as long as he lives. So Paul's really making two points. Number one, the law of God is binding on all. And number two, the law of God is binding on all only so long as they live. Now, the fact that it's binding on all universally, we should know just by experience, first of all, because we are naturally proud of personal accomplishment. In other words, in order to gauge our accomplishments, we have to be able to measure them against something inferior, right? So someone may proudfully boast about the fact that they've been married for a certain number of years, And the fact that someone would boast about that indicates the fact that not being married a long time, such as ending it in an unbiblical divorce, is not a good thing. So there's a good way to be married and live, and there's a bad way to do that. And even the world 
applauds long marriages, indicating the fact that there is an understanding of law within the heart. Secondly, we're personally critical of others, aren't we? We show our knowledge of the law by the fact that we highlight our successes and we highlight the failures of others. This reveals that we are aware that there is a law that governs us. Third, we're personally slow to admit our own failures. That is to say, we instinctively feel the law's weighty pressure and thus we try to hide our blemishes when we don't match up. It's sort of like the kid whose mother told him, don't eat a cookie before dinner, but he disobeys and he goes and eats that cookie and he comes into the living room and he has cookies smeared all over his face and his mother asks him, did you eat a cookie? And he says, no. He's trying to cover his sin, even though it's obvious to him, it's obvious to all that he has sinned. What is this? This is the knowledge of the fact that there is a law, there is right and wrong. And fourth, we're personally overcome with our own failures. Paul was in this passage. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. Sin leads to great devastation. Why else do you think there's depression in the world? Why else do you think that suicide rates are going up? So Paul's making two points. Everyone knows there is a law, and everyone knows that law is binding on all people. And number two, that that law, and this is where you need to pay attention, is only binding temporarily until that person dies. And you say, well, I've never heard it put that way. Well, Paul puts it that way. And you can think of many experiences and um, even the history of our country For example, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald, Lee Harvey was not brought to trial and prosecuted and put in prison or put to death. He didn't have a chance for that to happen because he himself was killed. And so the law had no binding power or influence over him. And you think uh, as you read the news, all of these school shootings and shootings in churches and public places, one of the most tragic things about it is the fact that oftentimes the shooter takes his own life or he gets into a gun battle with the police who take his life and you say why is that tragic because there's a sense in which justice wasn't served he was never brought to trial he was never prosecuted now there's a sense in which justice was served because at least he's dead he killed other people he deserves to die but the law itself is no longer binding on him he wasn't brought forth through a judicial process. He couldn't be because now the gunman is dead. Paul's simply making a universal observation in verse 1, which is very important to understand as he moves on because now he gives to us a marital illustration in verses 2 and 3. He moves from the universal observation, verse 1, to the marital illustration, verses 2 and 3. And here he's going to give a specific illustration to the universal observation about the law and its limited jurisdiction. Notice verse 2. He says, For, let me give you an example, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. In other words, Paul is simply saying that death changes the power of one's marital vows. The vows, till death do we part, are now null and void. The obligation of the vows made by the now deceased, in this case, verse 2, the husband, are no longer legitimate. And the obligation of the vows by the still living, in this case, the woman, 
are no longer legitimate. In fact, he uses a very strong verb here. He says that the woman is, notice this verse 2, released from the law. Kadargeo is the word for released from. It's a strong verb that means to annul or to abolish. It means to be loosed from, to be deprived of the force of, the influence of, or the power of. So Paul's simply saying that biblically and lawfully, the death of a spouse gives the widow, in this case, or by extension the widower, in another case, the freedom to remarry. And in fact, Paul will double down on this principle in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Same exact principle. And it might surprise you that Paul addresses this again in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He's speaking about young widows and he says their tendency is to be idlers, to go about from house to house and to be gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And here's Paul's counsel. He says, so I would have younger widows marry. Why? Because now they'll be distracted. They won't be busybodies. They'll bear children. They'll manage their household and they'll give the adversary no occasion for slander. So Paul actually commands young widows to get married again, revealing the fact that if one spouse dies, the living spouse is free to marry. So in Paul's illustration, the death of the husband releases the woman from the bond and the vows of marriage. Now, Paul then clarifies the power of the law in verse 3. Notice your Bibles. He says, accordingly, she, that is the living woman, the widow, will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, which is the case of verse 2, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul's saying that being in a marital union with another man while her husband is still alive, or a sexual union for that matter, makes her an adulteress if her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she's freed from the law, And so that if she marries again, she's not considered an adulteress. I want you to circle the word free. It is the Greek word eleutheros. It means to be unrestrained, not bound by any obligation. And she wouldn't be. She wouldn't be considered an adulteress if the husband is no longer living. All of this is borrowed, of course, from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 20 says, If a man commits adultery, With the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. And that's what Paul's addressing in verse 3. She's not free to marry. She's not free to live with another man. She's not free to have a sexual union with another man if her husband's still living. But once he dies, she is free. She won't be called an adulteress. If he's still living, she will be called an adulteress. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's the principle of verse 3. You can't leave your spouse and go marry someone else without it being considered adultery. And so you even have this example in the Old Testament. When David found out that uh, Nabal had died, he went and took Abigail as his wife which would have been lawful. So Paul's simply saying in verses 2 and 3 that a second marriage is morally above board, number one, 
When a marriage has died because adultery has taken place and the violator refuses to repent, that's Matthew 5.32, or we could go to 1 Corinthians 7, which we won't. When an unbelieving spouse separates from a believing spouse, Paul says, let them go, you're free to remarry. And secondly, a second marriage is morally above board when a spouse dies. The widow, the widower is no longer bound. So death is what marks the end of a marriage. Death is what removes the power of the law over a marriage. Either the death of the marriage through adultery, where there's no reconciliation, or a physical death of either spouse. So far, so good. But the third truth that Paul points out begins to bring home his argument that the Christian, listen to this, is like the living wife, freed from the law. And that's the way we live, joined to another. So Paul moves from a universal observation and a marital illustration now to a spiritual application. A spiritual application. Notice verse 4, Paul says, likewise. Now this word likewise shows that Paul is attempting to apply his marital illustration that flowed from his universal observation to the Christian's relationship to the law. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You have died to the law. Notice, Paul does not say that the law itself has died. He says, you have died. Now this tells us, going back to verses 2 and 3 just for a moment, that that was an illustration, not an allegory. There is a difference between illustrations and allegories. Allegories are where you take each part and you dissect it and you extract from that the minutia. Illustrations are different. Illustrations are simply making one big point. And the big point that Paul is making in this passage to apply it to the Christian is he's saying that the illustration in verses 2 and 3 pictures believers now being freed. They were once married to the law of God, but now they've died to that law And now they are the bride of Christ. They have been joined to Christ. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. That is to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, this is where many commentators get confused because they see the inconsistency in Paul's illustration. We are the wife of the spiritual illustration, and yet we are the one that died, verse 4. But back in Paul's illustration, it was the man that died. And so confusion ensues, and people begin to interpret what Paul's saying as an allegory. But let me give you just a, a very simple illustration. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes a statement here that can be troubling, he says in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, Philippians 2 verse 12, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You say, now wait a second, I thought we couldn't work for our salvation. Well, you got to let Paul finish his thought. Verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, Paul is saying that for the Christian... In sanctification, there is this matter of cooperation. You are to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, but you do it because you know you're a new person and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've been regenerated. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And if I were to say to you, 
that I want to illustrate Philippians 2, 12, and 13 by giving you the illustration of a moped, where you get on a, a moped and you begin to pedal that moped, and you pedal and pedal and pedal and pedal and pedal, you stop pedaling, and eventually, if you pedal enough, that moped will just carry itself. And I could say that's sort of like the Christian in sanctification. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We fight against sin. We pursue holiness. But the Spirit of God will sort of carry us through. And you could say, well, that illustration doesn't work. Because the Spirit of God is within us. And in your illustration, the moped is outside of you. And so the illustration doesn't work. And if you were to say that, I would smile at you and say, boy, are you grumpy this morning. Because you completely miss the point. All illustrations break down at some point, right? But they have one major point. So Paul's making an illustration, and it sort of breaks down in verse 4. Because Paul changes the one who dies. It's the wife, not the husband who dies. But Paul changes that, not to contradict himself, but to make the spiritual application. And the principle of verses 2 and 3 still applies, that when any spouse dies, the living spouse is free to marry. And Paul's simple point is this. Believers collectively are the new bride of Christ. We've been joined to him in an unbreakable union-like marriage. That's why he says in verse 4, notice your Bibles again, we died to the law through the body of Christ. And because he was raised from the dead, we are now united to him. As Paul says, we belong to another, namely Christ. This again goes back to the doctrine of our union with Christ. Go back to chapter 6 and verse 4. Paul says, we were buried therefore with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been given a new life. We're in a new relationship with God. We died with Christ on the cross. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So it should be clear. The husband in the illustration of verses 2 and 3 represents the law, doesn't it? And the woman represents the elect bride. We were married to the law as the woman was to the husband. And we were not released from the law and never could be released from the law until the husband died. But here is where the illustration breaks down because we might expect Paul to say that the law, which represents the husband, died. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, we have died to the law through the body of Christ. And furthermore, we're joined to him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. Paul is simply saying that our death to the law is a death in Christ. It's a death to the condemning power of the law to which we were married. And until we were released from that bondage, we were not free to be joined to Christ. But by our union with Christ in his death, because his death met all the claims of the law over us, we're free from the bondage and the power of sin to which the law placed us. That the death to the law's power in and through Christ releases and frees us just as decisively as the death of the husband in the illustration released the widowed woman to remarry. That's Paul's simple point. So if you're a Christian this morning... You have undergone a divinely ordained death from the condemning power of the law. What does Paul say back in Romans 6, 2? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Paul says in verse 2, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That phrase, died to sin, I take as equivalent in verse 4 of, of Romans 7 to died to the law. That's what Paul's speaking about. Or if you go with me to Romans chapter 8, Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice this, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Notice this, from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. As R.C. Sproul says, the law has not been removed, but in Christ we have died. And Christ has taken the full weight of the curse of the law upon himself so that we no longer carry the burden on our back. We've been freed to obey the law of God, in fact. We've been freed to live a new way because Paul says that once we belong to this new husband, verse 4, to him who has been raised from the dead, this is done in order that, the end of verse 4, we may bear fruit for God. There is a sense in which we have spiritual children with Jesus Christ, who is our husband. And it's the fruit of a holy life. This is not done in the power of the flesh. Because Paul says in Galatians 2.19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, I died to the law, but now I live in Christ and through the power of Christ. That's why Paul could say in Ephesians 2.10 that it has been ordained by God that we be His workmanship prepared for every good work. We bear fruit for God. So we died in Christ, and in Christ the law was fulfilled. So now we have freedom to obey another husband willfully and powerfully. This illustration and application is so powerful because the illustration works to be applied spiritually to the Christian, first of all, because a married woman is under the authority of her husband. That's why this illustration and application is so powerful. We know from Scripture that every godly woman recognizes she is under the authority of her husband. So too are we in subjection to Christ who is our head. This is Paul's point in Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your husbands just as the church is to Christ. Secondly, this is a powerful illustration and application because a married woman is subject to her husband as long as he lives. And isn't it true that Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. He'll never die again, and we possess eternal life. So the spiritual union that we have with Christ can never be annulled. The last Adam's work worked. The last Adam's work lasts for all of eternity. This is a match made in heaven, a marriage made in heaven. Third, the illustration and application works because a healthy married woman is able to bear fruit. And in fact, in Genesis That's part of the creation mandate, to be fruitful and to multiply. And it's as if we have been healed and restored and resurrected and cleaned up, to use the Old Testament analogy as the bride of Christ, now to bear the fruit of holiness. And it even applies, this illustration does in a powerful way, because we join Christ in seeing more children birthed through the Great Commission. Now, there is a faulty view of the Roman Catholic Church 
that likes to say that Adam, I'm sorry, that Jesus is the second Adam and that the church is the second Eve. And um, I would reject those Roman Catholic teachings. We were talking about Ian Paisley earlier, and Ian Paisley was a a wonderful Presbyterian minister in Scotland. One of my favorite stories of Ian Paisley, he was so against the papacy that he was in a meeting of European Parliament, and when John Paul II got up to speak, Ian Paisley, this wonderful minister, stood up and said, I denounce you as the Antichrist. And began to hold up a poster that said the Pope was the Antichrist. That's my kind of man. However, John Calvin does quote Church Father Cyprian. And Calvin says this, There is no other way to enter into life unless this mother, the church, conceive us in her womb, give us birth, and nourish us at her breast. And there is a sense in which, as the people of God, we're the bride of Christ. We join with Christ in the work of the Great Commission. It's done in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we proclaim the gospel. And those who come into the doors of the church, namely the children of believing parents, we are to disciple with great confidence that they will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think the illustration and application applies powerfully. But Paul moves not only from this universal observation and this marital illustration and the spiritual application, but he closes with a practical explanation. In verses 5 and 6, he gives us a contrast, a summarized contrast of the difference of what it was like pre-conversion and now what it's like post-conversion. We're in a new relationship. We're a new person. We've been joined to another and it's a completely different life. It's not like our old marriage. To the law. Notice he begins verse 5 with four. Now the the word four is the Greek word gar. It's a word denoting an introduction of Paul's explanation of how all this fits together. And he gives four features of our pre-conversion state. Notice he says, for while we were living in the flesh. The word flesh there is not a direct reference to physical humanness. Although it's used that way in some places. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But it's also used as a technical expression to describe The life dominated by sin pre-conversion. We had a decided bent towards sin, where sin dominated us apart from the Spirit's work of regeneration. We were living in the flesh. The second feature of our pre-conversion state has to do with our sinful passions. He says our sinful passions were aroused by the law. This is another feature of our pre-conversion state. Before coming to know Christ, we had a passion to sin. And even when we didn't sin, we wished that we were sinning. We wanted to sin. And the third feature of our pre-conversion state is that these sinful passions were, as he says, they're aroused by the law. That is, the law enticed our sin more. In fact, Paul's going to go on to say this later in chapter 7 and verse 7. Paul says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And in our pre-conversion state, the more we heard the law, the more we wanted to defy it. And then the fourth feature is that these sinful passions were at work in our members, notice verse 5, to bear fruit for death. You say, was there death in that, or was there fruit in the marriage that we had to the law of God? Yeah, it it was rotten fruit. It was nasty fruit, not good fruit. 
The sinful passions were at work. That's a very interesting Greek expression. Energeo is the Greek word. It's where we get our English word energy. It's as if Paul is saying we were a power plant of unceasing energy to sin 24-7, operating all the time. That's who we were. But now he offers the contrast, verse 6, but now. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, thank God for the buts of the Bible. But now. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. There's the word released, katargeo again. We've been released, we've been loosed from the power of the law and its penalties because we died with Christ on the cross and he was a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. And so what's the result? Well, the result is not that the law itself dies. We live through Christ and in Christ and now... We have the power to serve Christ. Notice, having died to that which held us captive, so that, here's the reason God saved us. In the first instance, Paul says, it wasn't to save you from hell, although that's true. But what was the greater end? So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. There is now a supernatural, sovereign Spirit-fueled, enabling to serve God, to serve the interests of God, which, by the way, cannot be separated from his moral law. Now, a passage that might help us with this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says that God has made us sufficient, verse 6, to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter... That's a reference to the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter, that's the law, kills, Paul says, but the Spirit gives life. The written code, to borrow Paul's language from Romans 7 and verse 6, is referred to here as the letters of the law. The letters of the law are a threat to a non-believer because it exposes their sin and it condemns them. For a true believer, the letters of the law aren't threatening. At all. In fact, Paul's not against letters. Romans is a letter. And Paul uses many letters to formulate words that formulate sentences that give to us holy commandments in the book of Romans. Paul is not afraid to command Christians to live a certain way. The letters of the law do kill. The Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What is this? This is a contrast between the law and the gospel. The letters of God's law expose our sin and condemn us, but the gospel frees us from the law's condemning power. That's justification. And it frees us to delight in the law's standards. That's sanctification. The gospel is a sovereign work of the Spirit that gives us life and gives us new meaning and gives us new power. The end goal of which is glorification. That is a state of complete harmony with the law of God in eternity future in the new Eden. So Paul's opening universal observation of the law being binding only as long as a person lives and his marital illustration telling us that a spouse is released from vows if a death takes place and his spiritual application of all that to the Christian's life and the practical explanation of the new life that we now have with our new husband who is Christ reveals to us that the church is the pure bride of Jesus Christ. And I have performed many marriage ceremonies. I, in fact, enjoy 
performing marriage ceremonies. I don't always enjoy the things leading up to that, but I enjoy the ceremony itself. We have been joined to Christ, and it's a two-way street. That's Paul's point. It's as if Jesus came to the altar, and Jesus took the vows first. Long before we sought him, he sought us. I, Jesus, take thee, sinner, to be my wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before the Father to be thy loving Savior in joy and sorrow, sickness and in health, in this life and for all of eternity. And because of God's loving, sovereign pursuit of us, we by the Spirit's power look at Christ in the face and we say, I, sinner, take thee, Jesus is my bridegroom and Savior. I do promise and covenant before my heavenly Father to be thy loving and faithful wife in joy and sorrow and sickness and in health in this life and for all eternity. Because you see, true salvation isn't merely knowledge about Jesus. It is a commitment to Jesus. And Paul's point here is the Spirit liberates us to be joined to him, to be committed to him, to serve him, to love him. And just as a ring is a sign and a symbol of a marriage between a man and a woman, so too is the Lord's Supper and baptism, signs and seals of the covenant that we have with Christ. The other day I couldn't sleep, so I went up to my library and I took down from my shelf a work entitled Glorious Freedom from Richard Sibbs, the famous Puritan. And I've read this book many times, but in this book, Sibs tells us how the Spirit of God sets us at liberty through the whole course of our salvation. He calls us, He justifies us, He sanctifies us, He glorifies us, that the Holy Spirit is the great liberator. And he says, very practically speaking, first of all, the Holy Spirit sets us at liberty because He powerfully and effectually calls us to Himself. That in eternity past, God chose to use the gospel that you would hear to powerfully, by His Spirit, draw you to Himself. And Sibs tells us that many are called, but few are chosen, Matthew chapter 20. He says that there are many Ishmaels and Isaacs within the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, For if it were not the Spirit that persuaded the soul when the minister speaks, alas, all ministerial persuasions are to be of no purpose. If the Spirit does not stir up the soul to answer all speech from men, is to no purpose. It's the Spirit of God we give credit to for liberating us, setting us at liberty and calling us powerfully and effectually. But Sib says the Spirit also sets us at liberty in our conscience because of justification from our sin, that the Spirit of God persuades us that Christ is ours and that we belong to Christ. Sib says, when the Spirit is brought to speak peace to the soul in Christ and makes the soul cast itself on Him for salvation, then God's Spirit is above the conscience. And that's one of the blessed realities of living in the freedom of the Spirit. It's that we don't feel guilty over sins that have already been forgiven in Christ. God does not want us to feel guilty over sins that we've been forgiven of in Christ. Third Sib says that the Spirit sets us at liberty in sanctification from slavery to sin. We shouldn't be discouraged in our besetting sins. We've been called to battle and we've been promised victory. When you go back and you read the Old Testament, and we're going through the book of Joshua on Sunday nights, 
when God promises Israel that he is going to give to Israel her enemies, place her enemies into Israel's hands, God does not say that this is going to come without a cost. God doesn't say this is going to come without fighting and without battles. And so, too, our liberty in the Spirit does not end our combat with corruption. God tells us that we'll have victory, but the victory does not come apart from fighting. And so one of the things this passage teaches us is that through the power of the Spirit, we have the victory of knowing that we'll have final victory. That whatever besetting sins we are struggling with, God, through the Holy Spirit, has given us the power to overcome them. We've been set at liberty. And fourth, Sib says, the Holy Spirit sets us at liberty to look forward to a future fuller liberty of the children of God. Paul, Paul of course, speaks about this in, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Sib says, alas, in this world we are free to fight, not free from fight. We are to fight until the end because we've been promised that we'll ultimately have victory over sin. Experientially, we will look like Jesus Christ in eternity. We've been promised that the law no longer has power over us. We've been set at liberty. Freedom from the law's penalties and demands. Freedom from besetting sins. Freedom to serve God with a full heart of gratitude with no fear. Freedom to go to God and to cry, Abba, Father, because we are His sons and daughters in Christ. Christ has slain the dragon, that serpent of old. We've been freed from the law and its condemning power. We've been joined to Jesus Christ. And in the power of the Spirit, we are a new creation, living a new way in the power of the Holy Spirit to obey in a way that we never could before. Not in the power of the law, but in the power of the Spirit to serve Jesus Christ our King who has standards and who has laws and those laws we delight in. And so Paul is essentially saying here in verses 1 through 6, be very, very careful as a Christian in your understanding of the law in your life. Because if you are not careful, you will tend to be very, very legalistic and you will not be living in liberty. You'll be living again in bondage and fear, and guilt. And God has called us out of that bondage and guilt to have liberty through Christ in the gospel. And the Lord's Supper is a picture of that liberty that we have. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. 